want to um, share a couple of things with you and also take a moment to pray for, pray for JD and to wake you up a little bit maybe too. Um, but uh, as many of you know, we have a, a partnership with um, our, our brothers and sisters in Bolivia and um, one of the things I would like for you to be praying for is for um, Carlos, who is the son of Matias, um, who is our, our, our key person there, Pastor Matias, um, is the, the guy that we work with to train pastors and to help the churches there in Bolivia. He has three sons, Mat- Matias Jr., um, Carlos, and Joshua. Carlos um, <coughs> is presently in school, but he is also um, developing this business and has been for the past few years. Um, and it's a, it's a paintball um, game activity business that he does. And um, part of his responsibility, of course, is getting the the resources, the stuff they need, the paintballs and the equipment to Bolivia so he can run the business. In doing that, he connected with a business here in the States that is a Christian business who has provided him with those, those materials, those pieces of equipment. In the process of that transaction, um, uh, when we were there last time, he said that the uh, American company apparently forged his signature and as a result, um, did not pay tariff taxes to Bolivia. Now the Bolivian government is going after the business, but Carlos is being thrown under the bus by this company saying, well, he's the one that signed this. And so, uh, you know, they, as a family, they just talked through it and said, you know, we did nothing, and this is, this is nothing that we were even uh, doing or aware of, this is something they did by themselves, but this is all being sorted out. And uh, so I just ask that you would pray for them. I know that they are people of integrity. Uh, they're not making things up here. Carlos is really shaken by it. His business has suffered um, because of that. And Carlos is also a key player in the churches there. And um, just ask that uh, you would pray for Carlos, especially because tomorrow um, the court case continues and uh, there are witnesses going to be presenting on his behalf and so on and so forth. So just be mindful, if you would, of that. And, and friends, you know, there could be some financial um, penalties that would be a hardship for Carlos at this time and would really hinder his, his business. Ha- having said that, just also understand that people that are in ministry in, in a place like Bolivia typically are not fully funded. They're not supported by their churches because the people don't have the resources to do that. And so having, having a business that is ongoing is, uh, is an opportunity to uh, provide the funding so that you can continue on in ministry and stuff. So just be in prayer for, for Carlos. And then also, um, JD is not here this morning. He is doing what I did last week, and he's over at Higher Ground. And Higher Ground Church is on Seminary Avenue and in Oakland. And uh, they're kind of a sister church to us. Many of us were uh, a part of the transition that took place in Billy Dempsey becoming the pastor, and we've, we've maintained a relationship. And, um, you know, I'm, we are really, really privileged here at our church to have... Uh, some, some men in particular who love the word and who have, have worked hard to be students of the word so that they can teach the word. And as we have raised those men up, it's been wonderful for me to be able to step away and let those guys step in the pulpit. And uh, they're growing, they're learning, but I think it's healthy for a church to see that, transa- that transition take place and that growth take place in God's people. Billy doesn't necessarily have that. And so um, he's been preaching you know, week and week and week and uh, a few weeks ago he said to me, he said, Rod, he says, I, I need a break and my family needs a, needs a break. Is there any way that you could come? And it's like, hey, Billy, just, 
Just say, we'll figure it out, we'll sort it out. We have people that can not only cover here and cover there. So I want you to know that we're trying to be a, a help and a partner to another church that um, uh, is really just doing a great work there. Last week we had a fantastic time and um, there's something, if you ever wanna just, I don't mind if you play hooky. Um, we actually found someone playing hooky there from our church. Happened to show up there last week who lives by there. It was funny. Um, I said, I'm watching you, always watching you, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but we had a great time together and uh, to, to fellowship with this church. It's a great experience. Um, typically African-American flair, um, but you will find if you go there, Billy's gonna be solid and powerful in his preaching and um, you will really be encouraged by it. So I uh, just want you to be aware of what's going on. And with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, for those two particular situations. Lord, we thank you for the kindness of bringing higher ground and, and gateway, Lord, to, together uh, to care for one another, Lord. And, and Lord, as we have opportunity to, to help, in particular, the, the leadership there, Lord, would you give us wisdom and discernment to do that? And I pray for JD this morning, who has uh, probably not preached in that kind of a context before, Lord, that you would give him freedom, that you would allow him, Lord, to proclaim your truth faithfully, and that he would be um, Lord, just received uh, by those people and just enjoy his time there uh, of ministry for you and for those people. And Lord, we, we just ask for your blessing and your, your gospel to go out powerfully through his lips. We pray, Lord, for the Mojica family in Bolivia, uh, in particular for Carlos, Lord, that your hand of, of care and protection would be on him, that uh, no matter what decision is made, Lord, that you would allow them to see that uh, your hand is in this, uh, that you are at work, Lord, and even through all the struggle he's gone through, Lord, that, that you have not abandoned him. And yet at the same time, Lord, we, we pray for justice and we pray for clarity uh, of, of thoughts for the, the judge. If there's a jury there, Lord, would you just give them wisdom and discernment to see what is true. And uh, Lord, that uh, in all that is done, Lord, that you'd be glorified. And uh, then, Lord, um, as we have gathered here today, would you give us freedom to allow you to do your work in our hearts as we open up your word? Um, and we, we ask now, Lord, for, uh, for you to, to, to minister, Lord, your Holy Spirit, to take the word of God and to impress it into our hearts, to challenge us, Lord, where we need to be challenged. In your precious name, amen. Now let me invite you to stand, and Quaisam um, is gonna come and read for us 1 Samuel chapter 27 through 1 Samuel 28, verse 2. So let's begin 1 Samuel 27 and verse 1. Then David said in his heart, now I, see, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Anihuam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For, while, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, 
Therefore Ziklag had belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gizites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from, from of old, as far as Shur, the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys and camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against Nagab of Judah, or against Nagab of the Jehemalites, or against Nagab of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces of war, their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you, your men, and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Once again, Lord, we come to you asking for discernment, for wisdom, but Lord, for you to uh, penetrate our hearts and to challenge us, Lord, where we need to be challenged, to convict us of sin, to draw our attention, Lord, to the ways in which we are falling short, but Lord, also to encourage us and to move us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Allow me to simply be your messenger and to accomplish your purposes, Lord, as we uh, open up this passage, Lord, for, um, for our consideration, but Lord, for you to do your work. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. For those of you that are visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And um, that is a practice for us because we believe wholeheartedly that God works through the, the, the steady preaching of his word through books of the Bible. And um, we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel, and the theme of 1 Samuel is God raising up his king. And you might want to just kind of catch the flow of what's going on in this passage to realize that in order to raise up this king, God had to raise up Samuel, his prophet, and in raising up Samuel, his prophet, he raised up and reestablished the word of God being central among the people of God and restored the house of God to a better place than it was at the beginning of this book. But the people wanted a king like the nations around them, and so God ultimately gave them a king according to their wishes, and that king was Saul. Saul was not God's choice, ultimately, but he was, it was God's concession to the people. And, and uh, what we find going on right now is that God also then raised up David to be his king, and there has been this journey for many chapters now in 1 Samuel where Saul is king, and we know that David is now God's uh, anointed king, but David has not ascended to the throne yet. Saul is still there, and Saul has been chasing David, trying to kill him for a long time. In fact, we've been parking in 1 Samuel over and over again where it's a different encounter where Saul is coming at David. And we've seen some incredible things about David and his character, and I think it's, it's fair to say we are impressed with David and the way he trusts God and the way he's been able to uh, just to, to allow God to be God in his situation. 
uh, to be wandering out in the, in the wilderness with 600 men. He might even add to that women and children while you're being pursued by Saul and his armies. And seeing God's hand at work is, is really an amazing thing uh, to, to see his leadership in that, in that time. But I think it's helpful for us just to pause a minute and ask the question. When, we, when it comes to the main characters of the Bible, key characters, like David, is it possible that we can be guilty somewhat of hero worship? Because you see, we, we see that God is raising up David. In 1 Samuel, David is supposed to be the king that God is providing. But we know that David is a man. We know that he's flawed. We know that he is sinful, and he has sinful tendencies. And ultimately, if we were to continue on into 2 Samuel and see David and his encounter with Bathsheba, and all of that that took place there, we see the rawness and the sinfulness of David's heart. And it's certainly right for us to respect and to, to learn from key characters like David, but we can also be guilty of holding them up as heroes. Our hero, friends, is Christ. And when we see the failure of a man like David, a king like David, who has the resources that David has, and has the connection to God, so to speak, that David has, we are discouraged. But we shouldn't be discouraged, we should continue on with the trajectory that says, Yes, David is Israel's king, but he is a lesser king than the ultimate king, and that is Jesus Christ, who will be the king of kings, the greater king, the perfect king. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, I'll be honest with you. I spent a long time this week just trying to land the plane trying to figure out what is actually going on in here because one of the things that you will notice in this passage is that God is silent. We have here a record of events and activities that take place, but there's no interaction from God where God is affirming or God is, 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 is saying, David, you need to change your ways. We just have these events that are taking place and we have to kind of you know, assess what's going on here and come to some conclusions. Now, if you're like me, I like to go and get the mail. My wife knows that. My dad used to do this every day. He wouldn't have the mail come to his house. He would have to go to the post office, right? And so he would go to the post office. He had to have his routine. He got to have his tea. Then he would go, and he would go check the mail. And he'd go check the mail. Then he'd go to the bank just to make sure the money's in the bank, right? And then he would come home. You know what I'm talking about, right? I like to check the mail, although I'm not always the person that does it although I might be guilty sometimes of coming home and checking the mail before I give my wife a kiss, which is a bad thing, okay? But I like to check the mail. And when you check the mail, one of the things you're looking for or you're hoping you don't get are bills, right? But I think one of the things that we absolutely dread getting is a jury summons. We get that jury summons, we're like, no! Right, we're like that, that the witch from Wizard of Oz, just melting away, right? And what happens is we're just thinking, oh, our world is going to be turned upside down, and we begin to think of ways that we can get out of this. Now, I've served on a jury three times. Actually, honestly, totally enjoyed it. It was a great experience just to see the, the whole process of our government at work and was very impressed by the judges I sat under um, and what I, what I listened to. Um, I may not have agreed with the conclusion, but ultimately that's, that's where things went. 
But when you get a jury summons, you're thinking to yourself, this is gonna disrupt my world, right? This is gonna change um, or have an effect on my, on my work schedule, I'm gonna get paid less and things like that. Well, one of the things that we need to consider this morning is this, I want you to be a jury. In order for us to assess what's going on in this passage, I think we need to approach this from the perspective of looking at the evidence and coming to a right conclusion. And so I wanna encourage you this morning to join with me in being a jury as we study this passage. Now we gotta be careful. We're not gonna stand in judgment, but we are going to come to a conclusion having looked at the evidence. And the reason I want us to do this this morning is because there is, there is some difference of opinion as to what is going on in this passage. In fact, one commentator I read said, every commentator says that what David is doing here is acting in, uh, with a lack of faith. He's walked away from God. And I'm like, that's not what I'm reading. I mean, that's not the commentaries that I'm reading. I, about half of them were saying that, and about half of them were saying the opposite. And honestly, there's a sense in which you're trying to figure out what's going on here. So I wanna present the facts and lay them out by virtue of pointing to some accusations. So some of the questions here are gonna be, gonna be this. Has David slumped into a season of faithlessness and failure before God and the people of God? Is that what's going on here? Or is David purposefully and cleverly walking in righteousness before God for the people of God. In fact, if you would, go back to chapter 26. And in chapter 26, we see something coming out of David's mouth. Um, and look, if you would, please, at verse 23. This is David speaking to Saul. He says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today. The Lord, he rewards righteousness, he rewards faithfulness, and the very next chapter, we see David pondering in his heart, leaving Israel and going into the land of the Philistines. So, has David slumped into this season of faithlessness when he's behaving like a panicked man? Or is he guilty of behaving like a purposeful king? Or to put it in a more contemporary form that you'll all understand, has David moved over to the dark side, okay? Is that really what's going on here? So as jurors, we'll need to consider five accusations. I'll, I'll read them off quickly, but you'll see them up on the screen as we go through them. Accusation number one, has David abandoned the faith? Number two, is David consorting with the enemy? Number three, is David guilty of committing mass murder? Number four, is, is he guilty of lying? Number five, is he guilty of treason? And, and when we're done looking at these questions, we will we'll call them concluding thoughts, but they're really keys that I think will help us land the plane of interpretation as well as application for us, okay? So, let's jump in with then the first accusation, the first question. Is David no longer trusting God? Is he no longer trusting God? Let's read verse one. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. 
So David is panicked, and the thinking in his heart is drifting away from God and his promises. I'm going to perish by the hand of Saul. The best thing for me to do then is to escape out of the land of the, and into the land of the Philistines and get away from Saul. And so you're asking yourself the question, hadn't, hadn't David seen God's hand of deliverance over and over and over again? And the answer, of course, is what? Yes, he had. Hadn't God promised that David is the anointed king? And hasn't he heard that from the lips of Jonathan and from Abigail and even from Saul on two occasions? Yes, he had. So why would David turn his back on God's and, and his sovereignty and actually his word out of these people and degenerate into a faithless man? This must be a crisis of faith for David. Why don't we see David praying over this? Why don't we, we see him asking for Abishai to bring out the ephod and, and try to determine what God wants him to do? There's a silence here that is clearly evidence of his lack of faith and disobedience. Now, I'm giving you one side, one approach to this passage, that David has slumped into faithlessness, that he's escaping from Saul. He's so panicked that he's willing to go over into the ungodly territory, and live there. But on the other hand, David could have stayed in the wilderness of Judah playing cat and mouse with Saul, knowing that God's protection was on him and that God would deliver him every time. But it's also possible that David and or some of those under his kingly care would also be in danger. Or he could have looked at the situation and applied the wisdom he had learned from God. Saul's confession and repentance that we read about in chapter 26 was very similar to things he said before, but he still pursued David. Saul has been sorrowful. Saul has said nice things to David, but continued to pursue to kill David. So is he going to believe even what seems to be a clearer kind of sorrow and repentance from Saul? David was the leader of 6,000 or 600 men, and now their wives and children. So there's probably about 1,500 to about 2,000 is what people consider was going on there. How could he protect them? How could he keep them out of harm's way? Perhaps David is thinking in his heart. This is what it says in verse 1. Now I shall perish on the day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Escaping from Saul and escaping to the land of the Philistines will give him his and his followers a safe place, free from constant movement and constant threat. David may be thinking, God is raising me up to be king. He's said that, so I have a responsibility to God, to the people of God, under my care. I want them to be safe, I want them to be secure, so Believing in a sovereign God and making difficult decisions to leave Israel seems to be the wise, logical, shepherding decision that needs to take place here. Now, what do you think? Do you think he's a hero or a villain? Do you think he's guilty of being faithless? Or do you think he's guilty of actually exercising faith in a sovereign God who is going to work out his plans. So there's a dilemma here, there's a challenge here. What we can say for certain is that David was having a serious conversation in his heart, right? Isn't that what the text says? It says in, in uh, specifically, 
And David said in his heart. Now friends, and like, just like David, this is where the real processing goes on. It is in our hearts that we begin to ponder the things of life. And we begin to consider various options before us. That we try and figure out what God wants us to do in a particular situation, a particular struggle, a particular trial. And what we think in our hearts will be the fuel to propel our actions. So is David thinking faithlessly or is he thinking faithfully? Is his move to the land of the Philistines the fruit of faithlessness and panic and fear? Or is it the result of serious consideration and trusting God in that move? The language in here, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Why would, why would David say that if he knew that God was gonna raise him up? I mean, so it's legitimate. And this idea of escape, right? They're gonna escape. But let me ask you, has, has David had to escape before? Yeah. Has the reality of Saul pursuing him been present? Yes. It was constant. It was present. All right. So uh, what you are thinking on, God's thoughts, God's values, God's motivations, are the things that are going to motivate you to pursue things in a God-like way. So that's the first consideration. And we have to determine whether he's guilty or not guilty. Let's look at the next one. Is David now consorting with the enemy? He's gone over to the other side. Notice what it says in verse two. So David arose and went over. There's kind of a, an impact there. He, he's, he's crossed the border. All right, he's no longer a Raiders fan. Now he's a Niners fan, all right? I mean, he has committed the greatest sin or he has been totally wise, all right? however you want to look at it, okay? And that's, that's the challenge here. We, 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 we see things like this and we come to conclusions. So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of uh, Maok, king of Gath. And by the way, this is not the first time he has, he's escaped to Gath. So he already knew the city. He's been there before. If you remember, this is the time when he went and he feigned madness. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and he, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of, Jez, of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. So David abandoned Saul, the king of Israel, for Achish, king of Gath. That doesn't seem too positive. You can almost hear the, the insult of Nabal from 1 Samuel 25 and verse 10 in David's actions. This is what Nabal said. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Remember that? And of course the reality was David wasn't breaking away from Saul. Saul was pursuing David to kill him. It's a big difference. But now, is David breaking away from Saul? He went over. He's going into a different territory. He's placing himself under Achish, the king of Gath, becoming his mercenary. Not only had David left Israel, but now he's consorting with the enemy, some would say. On the other hand, 
the narrator gives us three pieces of important information. Look at verse 4. It says, and, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. In other words, David's actions proved to be successful. Saul was no longer pursuing, which meant that, Saul, that David, his men, the wives, and the children were now safe. Now, one of the things that's probably in the background here is, well, how did he know they were going to be safe when he went over there? Text doesn't tell us. Okay? We don't know. But it seemed to be the wise thing, and there, there may be the reality that David had been there before. But he's trusting in a sovereign God. Number two, David finds favor with Achish and secures Ziklag for Judah. Look at, read at verse five and following. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, which tells us that David is trying to find favor in his eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. That's pretty significant. It's a little statement there by the narrator that Judah, sorry, that Ziklag has now belonged, it says, to the kings of Judah to this day. So from, from the point when David ultimately goes to Ziklag to the point of this writing, this now has been in the, the possession of the kings of Judah. The third thing, David's stay in Ziklag will be for 16 months. All right, that's verse seven. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So Ziklag was assigned to the tribe of Simeon when Israel settled in the promised land. I want you to think through this. When, when the Jews came into the promised land, they conquered. Um, there were still some of the tribes that were there. They divided the land, and each individual tribe was supposed to finish off the job. One of the towns that was assigned to Simeon was Ziklag. So this was supposed to be in the possession of Israel already, okay? But it's possible that either they didn't take it or that they took it and it was taken back by the Philistines um, based on a raid. But now it's in the hands of David and it has become for David a base for God's work to take place. It was close enough that David could report back to Achish, his master at that point in time, but it was far enough away that Achish just kind of left him alone. So this, this, this kind of partnership was good for Achish because David, as you'll see later, is bringing all these spoils of war in. But it's also good for David because now he has a place for his people to live. And we'll see later on in the story, it's also a key location because it's, it's a place where the soldiers who were leaving Saul's army were coming to join up with David. So this must have also been a comfort to these families, to these children, to these moms, a place they could settle down, a place they could call home, a, a place that was permanent where they could pitch their tents rather than always being on the run. And here is God's providential work through David's bold leadership. So is it any surprise that David has skillfully worked a plan to be in such a strategic place as Ziklag and that those who are under his care are taken care of. Now friends, just, just like David, life 
isn't always going to be straightforward, is it? What, be, what lies before you is not always going to be a smooth, providential line. It's not always going to be a simple walk in the park. There are going to be challenges. There are going to be obstacles. There are going to be things that you are faced with when you're struggling to figure out, God, what do you want me to do? And scripture may not clearly speak to your particular predicament. Well, like for example, when you're, when you're facing the, the, the consideration of, do I need to leave my job and find another job? Does scripture specifically speak to that? I mean, can you walk over to your bat phone and get over to God and say, God, I'm considering changing jobs. Can you tell me what to do? It doesn't work that way, does it? Now, it would be nice, we would think, but God has given us enough to be able to be discerning. And here is David who is being discerning, some would say, who's exercising faith in God, who's trusting him, and now has found himself in a place that God has providentially arranged that is good for David, that is good for the people of God. Is he guilty of consorting with the enemy, or is he innocent? Number three, this is probably the one that a lot of people have trouble with, is David committing mass murder. Friends, the Old Testament is bloody, is it not? And by the way, um, Jesus in the New Testament speaks of the Old Testament as being true and trustworthy and good, and that it points to him. So he affirms the bloodiness of the Old Testament. I just want to make sure that you understand that. There's no distinction that says, well, this is the New Testament where it's completely different and we abandon the Old Testament. No, Jesus looks back and there is justice that takes place throughout the pages of the Old Testament that is from God and because of people's sin and disobedience. Now, what we have here in verse eight um, is pretty raw. It says, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, we can assume children too, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. So not only killing all these people, but they're stripping all these people, and they're taking all of their stuff, all of their goods, back to Achish. What is Achish thinking? Wow, this is good. Well done, David. And so this, this seems, however, for us to be very off-putting. This seems very harsh. It seems really over the top that David now would be in the land of the Philistines, but he's killing all these people. This seems so out of character for David. And yet, if you remember the story of David and Nabal, you will remember that David is certainly capable of this kind of behavior. And you might even say, this is what happens when you walk away from God and you do things that are lacking faith and you're trusting uh, in, in the enemy of God to be a place of safety. You will find yourself doing things and behaving in ways that totally contradict God and his standards. One commentator even calls David during this season of his life the butcher of the south. 
Look at verse 11. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest we should tell about us this day. So David has done. Such was the custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. So we, we kind of get a little indication there. It's like, wow, David's just like, he's not letting anyone live because he doesn't want Achish to know what he's actually doing. We'll find out about that in just a minute. That seems really heartless. It just seems really harsh. I mean, there, there are images of ISIS that are flowing out of this text. You're like, is this what's going on? How could David slip so quickly and so aggressively from trusting in God? Or from trusting God, I should say, in righteousness and faithfulness that we saw in chapter 26 to become a reckless murderer of innocent people. How can this man be Israel's king? But, isn't David going up against the very people that God told Israel to wipe out when they entered the promised land? These actually are the very same Canaanite tribes specifically mentioned in Numbers 33, verses 50 through 56, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, and Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. The Geshurites and the the Gerzites, who are only mentioned here, by the way, were tribes that lived on the border between Egypt and the lands of the Philistines. The Amalekites were more of a nomadic tribe that wandered around. In Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and following, it says this, but in the cities of these peoples, remember this was given as they anticipated going into the land, okay? But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hivites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all the abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. That's pretty clear cut. When you go into the land, you're gonna wipe out these tribes. This is what God is commanding you to do, and if you are disobedient to God's command, you will then find that these people will be a snare to you. Now we need to back up a little bit, I don't want to get into too much detail. The justification for all that was the sinfulness of these tribes to the people of God. This, this is all justice being exercised on these people. It's not just God being a, being a fickle God saying, oh, I'll just go kill them. There was justice being carried out through God's people in what is called the ban, or the devoting to destruction of all these people groups. So. When David comes and he is wiping out these people, he is actually functioning justly based on what had been commanded many years ago but was not finished out. Listen, wasn't Saul, the people's king, supposed to wipe out the Amalekites early in the story of 1 Samuel? The answer is yes. Did he do it? No. He didn't finish the job. And so now David is left to finish the job. So isn't David simply doing what Saul was supposed to have done already? The answer is yes. Isn't David simply doing what God had told Israel to do when they entered the promised land? Yes. So my friends and fellow jurors, our job this morning as a jury is not necessarily to debate the rightness 
of a holy war against these tribes, which we can do based on the content of scripture, but our job as a jury is to simply assume that it is, this holy war is right because God has called for it based on the wickedness of these Canaanite people. Now, it is worth noting that these military successes in the southern territory of Judah and Philistia would eventually endear the people of Judah to David. Chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, beginning at verse 27, I'll begin at verse 26, this is what it said. Um, No, that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah, it is. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of Negev, uh, in, in Jatir, in Eror, in Shifmoth, in Eshtomitimua. When you're gonna read this passage, you're gonna be hating me, okay? <laughs> Uh, and recall, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borshan, in Aithak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. In other words, he's saying, this is the blessing for you. This is the spoil for you. Ultimately, he was doing it for the people of God. And this is after Saul and his men now had abandoned, after the men following Saul had abandoned and followed now David. Okay, this is, this is where this start, part of the story kind of, kind of picks, in, picks up. Now, it appears that David has been strategic to get Ziklag so that he could finish some of the job of driving out the people of Canaan. How, are, how is it though when it comes to us? Are we the kind of people that finish the job? Are we the kind of people when God says, I want you to do this, that we actually finish the job? We, we do it and we do it completely. How long does it take for us to deal with the things that God has commanded us to destroy or to put off from our lives? And I think sometimes we might dabble at actually dealing with the sin in our lives, trying to justify and rationalize, hey, we're we're doing a good job. But oftentimes we love the sin so much that we don't finish the job, that we don't persevere, we don't press on. As you look back at your life, Do you wish that you had been more diligent, more purposeful, more thorough in dealing with sin in your life? And I I think we can all look back and say, you know what? I wish I had taken that sin seriously years ago because now it has become this thorn in the flesh habit and it's so hard to, to rid myself from it. So Israel began strong after God's command. They entered the promised land. They started to to wipe out the people, but we see that in the book of Joshua, but as we get into the book of Judges, the people then begin to drift away. They actually become enamored with the people. They actually join up with, with one another, intermarrying. They ultimately worship their gods, along with kind of synchristically with the God of Israel, trying to, trying to marry the two together. And then the Israelites become oppressed by those people and they are under this oppression for Saul and they cry out for a deliverer. And that's just the pattern of the book of Judges. And so here is David trying to finish the job that we see the condition of Israel at the beginning of 1 Samuel and we see David trying to at least pursue the finishing of the job. Now friends, this is the pattern of Israel. This would also be a pattern for us that we're not willing to finish the job in dealing with the sin that God has commanded us to deal with. So the question is, is he guilty? Is he guilty of of mass murder? 
Number four, is David lying? What kind of king is David going to be if he's not a man of integrity? How can David be a man of integrity if he lies? Let's read verse 10 and following. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremalites, against the Negev of the Kenites, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should, they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. So when Achish would ask David, where have you raided, David would lie. Rather than tell Achish he had raided against the Gershites, the, the, the Gerzites and the Amalekites, David responds by speaking in vague generalities. I have fought in the Negev, which simply means the southern territory. And he includes the southern territory by saying, you know, the southern territory of Judah and the southern territory of the Jeremites and the southern territory of the Kenites and here's what's going on. In other words, David was, was giving these generalized deceptive answers, just mentioning the area. Achish wasn't asking any further questions and so David certainly wasn't gonna give any further answers. And there was this happy partnership going on. You might say, oh, this is clearly lying. This is clearly deception on the part of David. And my response to you would be, you're right. Can't whitewash it. He is not telling the truth. He is being deceptive. Now, isn't it always a sin to lie? I throw that question out to you. Ponder it. You might say, well, yeah, we're not supposed to lie. God calls us to be truthful, to tell the truth, right? Hadn't David asked Jonathan to lie for him? at the royal feast so that he and Jonathan can determine Saul's murderous intentions? Hadn't Michael, David's wife, lied to those who were coming to kill David by saying he's not here? Didn't David feign madness, deceive the king of Gath and the people of Gath that he was insane so that he would be safe? The answer is yes, all those things are true. That's deception and that is lying. So is it always wrong to lie? Is it? My friends, we live in a fallen world where moral absolutes can clash against each other. We've talked about this before, but I think this is just a, a well-known story, a well-known um, kind of illustration of the tension here. You guys remember the story of Cory ten Boom during the Second World War. And they had a practice of hiding Jews in their home. And they would hide them in various places, and my understanding is they hid them under the floorboards. And one time, the, the, you know, the Nazis would come, they'd knock at the door and say, do you have any Jews here? And the family would say, no, we don't have any Jews here. But they knew that they had Jews there. And one of the children, a daughter, so the sister, sister of Corrie Ten Boom, um, was struggling in her conscience. And she just you know, believed, hey listen, if, if God is sovereign, if he is totally in control, then we should make sure that we are telling the truth. And in telling the truth, that God in his sovereignty would protect anyone that he so desires to protect. And the rest of the family is saying, I understand what you're, you're thinking. I understand your desire for 
integrity, your desire for purity, your understanding of the greatness of God. But God also wants us to be wise. Yes, God is sovereign, but he calls us to use wisdom. He calls us to see the greater good. If they take the Jews away, they will be sent to the concentration camps where they will die. If we lie, they have a chance of living. And friends, there's a tension there, isn't there? Because in this room, we might fall on two different sides of that. But the problem is, is when we start accusing one another of falling on those two different sides. This is an issue of conscience in the moment, in particular for the safety and the health of the people that are around. We've talked about it this way. I know I have two beautiful daughters. I have a wonderful wife. And I have people come to my door and they're looking to abuse my family. And they say, are your daughters at home? Is your wife at home? My answer is going to be, no. Why? Because I like lying? No, because the greater good is the health and protection of my family. You get that? I think we all understand that. That's what was going on here in the home of the Ten Boom family. So there is a time when lying and deception is appropriate. So when David comes before Achish and, and, and Achish asks David, where have you been? David lies, I've been raiding in the south of, of, uh, of Judea here. These are ethics of war. Friends, just think of this time, right? In war, you don't tell your enemy where you're gonna strike. You know, your enemy may, may have positions all along their border, and they know you're gonna strike. And you don't kind of get up that morning and say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna strike from over here, just want you to know, because we wanna be completely ethical with you. Um, we wanna make sure that we have integrity. We're not deceiving. No, the ethics of war say, Pretend you're going to go from here and strike on the east, but you actually end up striking on the west. That's the ethics of war. You do that. And that is what David is ultimately doing. Use stealth, use deception, use cleverness, and lying if necessary. And it's through the element of surprise that you gain the advantage. So sometimes lying and deception are acceptable for the greater good, especially in times of war, self-defense, protection of others. Now, if you're struggling with that, that's okay. Because this is not supposed to be something that, is, that we do flippantly. This is something that you might want to say is an incredible, unusual exception to the rule of speaking the truth and being people of integrity. So if you're a teenager, don't go home and say, see, Pastor Rod said, it's okay for me to lie to you. That's not the case, okay? And this is where, friends, we, we need to be thinking people. We see the result of David's cunning in the following verses, verse 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. See, David has fooled Achish so much that David, or that Achish thinks that David has not only abandoned his people, but he's turned on his people. And that he is going to be his servant for life. Oh, he's in for some surprise. So is David lying? What's the answer? Yes. But is his lying a smear on his integrity or is it evidence of his love and care for God and his people? Is David lying? Yes. But is he lying as a result of his ongoing disobedience and faith, faithlessness? I would say no. 
Is he lying as a result of David's cleverness and cunning as a deliverer of God's people? Let me ask you, are you known as a person who lies? Are you known as a person who struggles with deception? Do you take lying with ease? Have you developed the habit of lying and deceit in order to get your way, to enjoy your sin, to avoid a conversation? Now these may not be outlandish issues of the heart, but nuances that affect how you think and then ultimately how you talk and behave. When someone calls and wants to talk to you, and you know this conversation is gonna be difficult, maybe it's a bill you haven't paid, maybe it's someone's collecting, do you tell someone else to answer the phone and tell them that you're not there? That's lying. Can you not speak to people honestly and say, you know what, I didn't pay my bill, I'm sorry I didn't pay my bill. I'm gonna work at paying my bill. Rather than lying to simply avoid the conversation. See, these are the subtle places where this kind of stuff comes up. Number five, is David guilty of committing treason? In those days, it says, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And now Achish is saying, hey, listen, David, since you've been serving me all this time, you're going to come and you're going to be my bodyguard. And David says, that's okay. I'll show you what I can do. Come on, he says, you're going to be my bodyguard. It's like, how in the world can the one who has been anointed to be king of Israel now stand in league with the enemies of Israel to fight against Israel? It doesn't make any sense. It seems like David is here ready to commit treason. Is he guilty or is he innocent? What's interesting about this story is that chapter 27 actually goes all the way to the end of 1 Samuel. This, the story does. There's actually a hard break at the end of chapter, uh, actually after chapter 28 and verse two and we have a kind of an inserted story but the story continues on in chapter 29 and 30 and we, we actually find ourselves hanging in the story here. And what ends up happening in the story is that David then is, is there, ready to fight with Achish, but God delivers David, how unusual is that, right? By putting into the hearts of the other Philistine lords a distrust of David. And they say to Achish, listen, how can you bring the man who was with Saul when it said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, speaking about the conquest against us, the Philistines. How could you bring him along? We will not go into battle with him at the rear. You send him away. You send him away. Now again, we don't know exactly all that's going on in the heart of, of David. We don't know if David even understood what God was doing, but the question is, is he committing treason or is he trusting God fully, even in this situation? Some would come to this and say, see, this is what happens when you abandon God. This is what happens when your, your, your faith is lost and you go into the enemy territory. I mean, if you approach the passage from that perspective, this stuff really preaches. But God in his providence doesn't allow David to fight against his own as much as Achish has been fooled by David and his deception, 
the other Philistine lords, like I said, would not have him fight. So is David guilty or innocent? Now we've, I wanted simply to walk through those without giving too much of, of where I land on this. Um, but I think you know where I land on this, having gone through this. And quite honestly, some of the people that I listened to and read on this saw David in failure, misery, wandering, and abandoning God. And others saw here David as, as a man who's being wise, who's being careful, trusting God, trusting in God's sovereignty, learning to think and to act um, in such a way as to protect those that are under his care and to see God's hand at work be accomplished through those particular efforts. And so to give us a key, to give us a little better understanding, to flesh out some more application, uh, I wanna draw attention to five different areas here in the concluding thoughts. When I say concluding thoughts, don't think, you know, quick, we're we're gonna take a little bit more time. First of all, I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 18, because in that particular place, we find a description of David by one of the um, men of Saul who was there in Saul's palace. They're looking for someone to play a harp, and he remembers David. And notice what what he says here about David verse 18 of chapter 16. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, talking about playing the the harp there, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And what I would like to contend to you is that you can take this description of David and you can lay it on this particular section of scripture. And what you're gonna find is this. Do you see a man of valor who is courageous to even go into the enemy territory? The answer would be yes. Do you see a man of war? Yes. Do you see a a man who's prudent in speech, especially with Achish? Yes. Do you see a man of good presence, a leader of his people? Yes. Do you see that the fact that the Lord is with him even at every strange and unusual turn. And I would contend to you, you see these characteristics fleshed out in this passage. Even though there isn't any indication in the passage as to whether he is guilty or innocent, specifically stated by God or by the narrator, we see these characteristics fleshed out. Secondly, I want us to think about the word context. And there's two, there's two aspects of context that I think are helpful here. I mentioned one of them just now. In 1 Samuel 27, the writer of 1 Samuel, which would be you know, a human writer as well as a divine writer, is silent on David's innocence or his guilt. This is a text where God is absent, not meaning he's not in the story, but there's nothing specifically mentioned about him interacting with David in this passage. Then in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, and verse one, this is a, a parallel, so to speak, of the events that were taking place at that point in time. Here's what it says. Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag when he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that the author of First Chronicles is not speaking about David in this scenario in a negative light. In fact, he's giving David room. He's saying, this is where David was because of Saul. 
that David had to move this way because Saul was still pursuing him. And these mighty men abandoned Saul and found David where? In Ziklag. Now the point here is this, is that context is helpful for us to get an understanding of the tone of what is happening in a passage. You're not gonna find a passage speaking into the text for Samuel 27 that speaks of it in a negative light. What you see is just kind of the run of the mill comment, a matter of fact comment, or even some comments by the narrator in that passage that say, okay, this is good for Israel. They got Ziklag back. These, these, these who are the, 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 the tribes who were there from the beginning of old, it says. David is now going and he is, he is dealing with. And you read it with that understanding, you see, ah, oh, this is a positive thing. This is a, a good thing that is taking place. Then there's the word guidance. There's something about how stories are put together in the Bible, and I think the context here is helpful. We see in chapter 26, if you remember, that was kind of like a, a focal point. Everything came to a point. Even the spear is used there as a picture of, of all these ideas coming to a point where David could kill Saul. But we see that through the story, that would be chapter 24, 25, and 26 in particular, God is working on David, teaching him by virtue of his word, by virtue of his conscience, by virtue of his own repeated trials and experiences. And so we see that that is one of the ways that God guides his children through his word. He guides them through their conscience. That's what happened with David. His conscience was struck. And so he chose not to follow through with the behavior that he could have followed through with as well as the many trials that he went through. And friends, we learn from our trials. And then in chapter 27, God guides us, I'll put it this way, through wisdom. Just hold on to that thought, we'll get back to it. In chapter 28, this is where Saul goes to the witch of Endor. Saul has abandoned God. Saad, uh, he goes to find an answer, a solution, instruction, not from God, but from the demonic world. And we often at times are tempted to abandon God and to find answers in this world from places that are substitutes or replacements of God, and that is what Saul did in that particular context. And so, so what, we're, what we're dealing with here then are these three pictures, these three patterns that God gives us about how we are guided. And I wanna go back here now to this, uh, this last little section, if you don't mind, and that would be um, chapter 27. We see there that there's no mention of God in this chapter, no counsel from God, no instruction from God, no prophet of God. Remember, Samuel is dead. And David was literally on his own, but he was not abandoned. He didn't have a direct hotline to God like we talked about before, this, this phone that kind of gets you directly to God. He didn't have that prophet. He didn't have the, the ephod. At least we don't see him using it. But he was still able to apply biblical wisdom from what he had already been told and experienced. Now friends, I want you to think about this. How many of you, when you go home, can pick up a phone and talk to God? I don't mean some internet site, okay? I'm actually talking about, you, you don't, that's not how it works, right? In fact, for us, how do we discern what God wants us to do? 
And I would say to you, you don't go out and look at a cloud, you don't hear him audibly speak, you, you see him revealing himself through the pages of his word. And as you spend time not only listening to the word, but, but uh, taking it in, um, being under the word of God, um, leaning on the word of God, those are all ways in which God counsels you and helps you. But our Christian lives are typically lived out by applying wisdom to what we are facing. I mean, how many times have you said, God, I wish you would just give me some clarity here? Anyone said that? But God is not going to give some new revelation. He's given you his word. He wants you then to apply his word skillfully. That's what wisdom is, the skillful application of something. In this case, it's the skillful application of God's word. And that is what David, I believe, is doing here. He's skillfully applying the word that he has received from God as well as the lessons that he's learned from God so that he can make a decision for the benefit of God's people to go into a place that might appear to others as being the ungodly territory, but he's making that decision out of care for his people and for his God to accomplish his purposes. He's using wisdom, and friends, that is what we are called to do. And when we struggle day by day, we say, God, give us wisdom. You say, well, give me a word, God. Well, that word is the direction, but you may not have a specific word that specifically speaks to your specific situation but you have God's truth in principles that help guide and fashion what you need to do. So to be a faithful Christian, and I'm gonna use the word must, we must be thinking people. We must be thinking people. We just don't float around and kind of feel God, right? I feel this is what God wants me to do. I know it's part of our vocabulary. I would encourage you to change that. Don't say, oh, I feel this is what God wants me to do. Say, you know what? I believe based on biblical wisdom and understanding and, and careful discernment and prayer and the support of others that God is, is, is presenting this option for me and I want to, apparently God wants me to say something different right now, I don't know. <laughs> but we apply that carefully into, into our context. So we must be in God's word to know it, right? We must be under God's word to be moved by it. So it's one thing just to know it, but to place ourselves under it means that it is our authority. It's not saying that we just worship pages, but this is God's revealed word. This is God revealing himself to us. Therefore, we must say, we're gonna be submissive to what God has revealed here, but we have to know it, but we also have to be submissive to it. But then thirdly, we must be leaning on God's word, seeking how to apply it to specific situations using biblical wisdom as our guide. And friends, that is risky because we can face situations that are not clear cut in scripture and come to different conclusions. And so even as we come to this idea of guidance, I, I wanna bring up another word um, that I think is, flows out of this and it's the word judging. It's easy to come to this passage and be a Pharisee to place yourself in judgment of David and quickly point to all the things that seem clear to us that David is doing wrong. Oh, he's abandoned God. He's, he's joined up with the ungodly. He's committed horrible crimes against humanity. He's lied. He's committed treason. What an awful guy he is. Do you have the spirit of the Pharisee in you? 
Are you the kind of person that's quick to judge? Quick to find the error? Quick to find the problems in things that are before you? Maybe it's the lives of people. Are you quick to judge others? Now I know we're, we're not told in scripture, um, well we are told in scripture the following, judge not that you be not judged, but there's a context to all that that we must recognize that it's not saying we should never judge, it's saying that if we do judge, we need to use the right measuring stick to judge and that we should place ourselves under that same measuring stick. All right, that's Matthew chapter seven, one through five. Read it for yourself. We are called to judge, but are we quick to judge? And to judge in such a way that we are pharisaical in it. That's just our nature now. We must, we must, we must beware of our own sinful tendencies and the presence and the influence of sin in our lives. But we must also beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees that are just picking apart and looking for the wrong. And if we come to this passage and all we see is David's wrong, we may not be able to step back and see the bigger picture of what God's going, what is going on through God at work in David's life and situation. As I've studied this passage, I, I, I come to the conclusion that I exonerate David on all of these counts. I see him as a man of righteousness and faithfulness with whom the Lord is, is blessing. He didn't, he didn't abandon God, but acted in righteousness and faith to care for his people. He, he didn't change his loyalties, but cunningly used his influence to gain a foothold in Philistia. He didn't go on a murderous rampage, but finish out what should have been done years ago. He did lie, but in times of war, that is understood. He didn't commit treason because he trusted that God was still at work. I want to leave us with one more word. One more word. It's the word planning. One of the things that we can take away from this passage is how David plans, he thinks, he strategizes, and he acts. And David is doing all of this under the guidance of a sovereign God. Proverbs 16.1 says this, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Look at verse 9. The, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God, God wants us to plan. Have you ever made plans that change? God's not saying, well, see, you made the wrong plans. He's saying, no, make your plans, but understand that what ends up happening is actually what I wanted to take place. And so we need to recognize that, that David here is an example of someone who was thinking carefully about a situation, bringing God into a situation. It may seem to us unusual, even wrong, for him to go over into the land of the Philistines, but as David sat and pondered in his heart and considered the options before him, considered his God, considered what God had told him before about what he was doing, he could think positively, he could think rightly about going into a place that you and I would have said, we should never do that. 
What God is saying in these verses is this. It's appropriate for us to plan, but what actually happens is from the Lord. It's right to plan, but it's the Lord that establishes our steps. Planning's a good thing. We don't have to wait for an audible or direct voice from heaven to plan our days. No, we use logic, we use wisdom, we use conscience, we allow the Holy Spirit to be at work, and we plan based on the fuel of past experiences. Friends, that's, that's where we live. That is what David is doing here, I believe. It's raw, it's rugged, it's messy. But isn't that what life is like? And we must be very, very careful, not just to look in judgment at one another for choices that we're making. We must be careful that we are encouraging one another and seeking to understand the full picture of what is happening maybe in a person's life and encourage them to pursue God by the application of wisdom and conscience and logic and God's sovereignty at work in their lives. Lord, help us today. This is, this is a passage, Lord, that brings so many questions to our minds. And Lord, it's so hard for us at times to even consider the difficulties in our lives where we want to we wanna land the plane of understanding in one direction, but yet we are confused because it seems like there are other options that are available or that there's, there's no right answer, but other people might think that our no right answer is actually failing you in some way. And Lord, there's so many things that bounce around in our hearts and we, we desperately need, Lord, for you to be the one who is guiding us. Lord, first of all, help us not to be pharisaical in the things that we say, that we think, that we do. May we initially, at first, give one another the benefit of the doubt as we encourage one another in our walks to, to serve you and to honor you. But Lord, at the same time, may we not be flippant and make decisions based on things, Lord, that are, that are not part of the fuel for proper, careful decision-making, Lord. You have given us your word, you have wonderfully given us a conscience that wrestles with what your word says and what life is like. You've given us trials and, and times where we've seen your faithfulness over and over again. Lord, help us to be people who are applying biblical wisdom to all of life. And Lord, may we encourage one another to do the same. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to rely on David to be our ultimate example. We can rely on you. You are our hero. You are the one that we worship. We, we worship you because you are the perfect, righteous, faithful one. And we can always trust you. We can always look to you. Thank you, Lord, for the careful guidance that you've given us this morning. Would you be glorified now, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. I, I love the picture of leaning, leaning on on. And God and in His truth, and uh, so I, this song I think is appropriate to lean on uh, on Christ, our rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I'm 
Christ a solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand darkness when darkness seems to hide his face I 